0: Hello, I am The Nihilist, and welcome to my Album of the Month Club. Every month this year, 2023, I, The Nihilist, will be uploading onto uh, all the major platforms, all the major music platforms, and particularly Spotify, a different album from my 20-odd-year catalog of music that I have recorded. And this is episode number three of the accompanying podcast series that I'm putting together with a different podcast to accompany every release that I do. And this is episode number three of Liner Notes about my album release for March 2023. This album is called The Next Big Thing. In episode two of Liner Notes that I put out last month to accompany the upload of my album and out of nowhere... I said that the best way to contextualize this music is to tell you who I was, who I am, and who I was at the time that this music came out, and where I was at the time this music came out. Now, last month I did, it was quite an epic podcast, really. um, I think it ran to twice the length of the actual album itself. So for this one, I'm going to keep it a bit more brief. And because I kind of answered those questions about who I was and where I was, in last month's episode because this music is coming from pretty much the same time and the same place as and out of nowhere in fact the two albums and out of nowhere and the next big thing are companion pieces really Um, one thing that i need to explain at this point i think is how these albums came about because they didn't necessarily sit down to record these specific albums as they have come out they were more drawn from my catalogue of music that I had been recording at the time in the studio that I had and also at home in my bedroom before I got that studio and with various friends in different places that we recorded. Now the previous album to this that I put out last month and out of nowhere, I realised that it's um, it's quite noisy, it's quite abrasive, it's harsh. There's two sides to my music production as an nihilist really there's the kind of raw pared down rock and roll more punk rock kind of angry but more passionate side to the music that i make it's usually a bit more minimal made on less equipment and that equipment is quite distorted and it's noisy and like i said last month i love recording things hot so that it's like all the levels are in the red and things are distorting now, this album that I'm releasing this month, The Next Big Thing, it's a different approach. It's the other side of my musical aesthetic that I use as a nihilist, or certainly that I did at this time. And it's a lot less focused on the abrasiveness and the harshness. And it's going for something that's, I, I would describe this as being, I don't know, I guess it's more psychedelic. There's more layers to the music. It's not as minimal and drenched in distortion and feedback as the music on and out of nowhere. It's, in a way, it's softer, but I'd say it's uh, more complex. There's more to listen to. I don't really, it's hard to describe how to compare the two musics. I think the easiest term to use is psychedelic. Because that, to me, suggests music that operates in various different layers and the recording process is maybe a bit looser and let the musicians do whatever they want rather than pairing it into simple song structures. A bit more progressive, I'd say, maybe? I don't really, yeah, I don't know how I feel about the word progressive. And certainly it's not like prog rock with a capital P. But mm, musically and aesthetically... The next big thing is, I'd say, a bit more psychedelic and less abrasive than the previous month's album, And Out of Nowhere. Whereas And Out of Nowhere is more explicitly influenced by noise acts like The Velvet Underground, Sonic Youth, Jesus and Mary Chain. And of course, I talked a lot about Peaches in the last podcast episode for Liner Notes. This album, The Next Big Thing, it's... It's hard to explain now because the musical landscape has changed quite a lot but in certain aspects some of this album would even fall into what at the time was called chill out music I suppose although I don't necessarily think that listening to this music is that chilling. (laughs) Chilling. The next big thing opens up with the track Ya, yeah, which I had previously put out under the name Viva Les Imaginaires, which is in brackets after the tune title now. But the reason I called it Ya, yeah, it's, um, I don't know, it seems quite obvious to me, you guys, but if you don't quite get the reference and you want to have it explained a bit more why it's called that. This was the era when I got really heavily into Krautrock which is a term I don't really like because it's, uh, I don't know, it's quite dismissive and it's very Anglo-centric to call something kraut rock. But if you don't know what Krautrock is, basically the main big players in krautrock rock, uh, it's basically like the 70s, what the Germans were doing in the 1970s while the English were doing prog rock. They had their own kind of format of progressive rock in Germany that became known as Krautrock in the UK. It wasn't very big at the time, it was more kind of in um, looking back in it from decades like the 90s and the noughties that it became more kind of central to influencing kind of tangential alternative rock music rather than at the time in the 70s. But the big hitter bands of that movement were Cannes and Faust and Noy. Noi being spelled N-E-U with an exclamation mark and was listening to Noi that really got the tune which I called Viva Les Imaginaires together but originally when I was jamming it out I had just called it Ja um, as a reference to um, Happy Germans and I have decided to revert to that name for the next big thing release. I talked in episode 2 and in episode 1 of the Liner Notes series about the influences on the music that is on the albums that I've been uploading. So I'm going to do the same here. I think probably the easiest thing for me to do is just go through this album track by track and tell you guys about what was influencing me and where this music came from and what it came out of. And one of the biggest influences on me in my entire music career from when I... um, Oh, there's a story about this. I'll hang on to that for a second. But I will go back in a minute and tell you it one of the biggest influences on me all over for music of all genres and in my entire life is the band Stereolab who came out in the early to mid 90s with their own kind of particular take on the German genre Krautrock Um, it was it oh god you guys Stereolab I told you last month in the second edition of this liner note series about how big an influence on my formative musical mind the velvet underground's album white light white heat was and i should also tell you that around the same time that i bought a cassette copy of white light white heat from my local music shop in a small town ireland which was a really rare thing to be able to find in my local music shop that was literally just up the road from where i lived that album white light white heat around the same time i think it was that same summer i purchased another cassette from the same shop of another kind of weird thing that i would have been the only person for miles around who would have been interested in this music so it was really cool that actually i was the one who discovered that um joe the, the man who ran the shop was kind of importing some kind of cassettes of alternative rock from the uk to sell on and one of them that I found and that he, when I came into the shop, Joe told me himself, he was like, Oh, I've got something in, I think you'll really like this. And it was the debut album by Stereolab, which is called Peng. And that came out on two Pure Records in 1992. And I knew nothing about them. I think I'd seen one of their videos on MTV Alternative Nation once, and it was really organ driven. It was really heavy organ vibes. And um, That reminded me a bit of The Doors. So when Joe said, you might like this, and he put it on on the shop stereo system, and I heard a couple of tunes. I was like, yeah, okay, I'll buy that. I'll buy that cassette. It seems interesting. And to this day, Stereolab's Peng. It's up there for me with Velvet Underground's White Light, White Heat. It's drony, It's synthy. It's still rock music. It's got a live drummer. They weren't using drum machines and stuff at the time, but they were called Stereolab. And it was all about exploring music, but also exploring music, particularly from a more kind of synth-based angle than with guitars. They did have guitars in their music, and they were very kind of like, some Velvet Underground-y bits. Um, But for me, what really attracted me to Stereolab was their use of synths and their... um, Their melodic structure, which does harken back to the classic German rock of the 70s, but also the kind of drone vibe, where the tracks would go on just kind of riffing on one groove for three to four minutes, very much like an extension of what The Velvet Underground had been doing in the 60s. But this was the early 90s and a lot of the synths that were available in the 70s and the early 80s had come down in price and weren't really being used that much in rock music anymore. But Stereolab built their entire sura- sound around that vibe. And this track, Ya, um, ja, a.k.a. "Vivalez Imaginaire," was me trying to make a Stereolab-esque, krautrock, epic, groove-drone, instrumental, synth-based krautrock track. I still listen to Stereolab to this day. They're still one of my all-time favorite bands. I'll follow their career wherever they go because the different tributaries that they've gone down over the past 30 years of existing, including bits when they've not been around, when they've broken up and then they've reformed, and all their offshoots, they're just fantastic. And it has really informed my take on using synthesizers and the kind of sounds that I like to get out of synths. And on this track, on Yeah, I didn't, I think this was the first time I'd ever really had the chance to use an actual um, synthesizer as opposed to like a groove box which had some pre-sampled synth-esque sounds on it that you could play around with. No, I was able to get my hands on a Korg MS-20, one of the classic early synths that became very popular in, in the global music scene, really, from like the late 70s on. A couple of friends of mine who were house producers managed to get their hands on one and they gave it to me for a loan and I slathered this track in that gorgeous analogue synth the white noise rushes and splooshes and squidges but also some of the kind of more heavy bass drone elements that the synths were so good at doing and it was a joy, it was a pleasure to do it, so to call this tune Yah as opposed to Viva Les Imaginaires i'm not gonna i'm not gonna lie yeah, i'm pretentious i don't i don't mind people calling me out on that but really the spirit of this track was just to be able to for once put together a kind of kraut esque tune and um, i've also been i was also told by my friends at the time that it sounded very like godspeed you black emperor who uh, i'm not that au fait with their music actually but i know that people really like them and so i'll take that this tune is that kind of Stereolab meets Noi, Krautrock, apparently some shades of Godspeed you Black Emperor and it was me just having a really, really great time with an actual analogue synthesizer, the first one I think I ever got to use and record. The second tune, on the next big thing is called From Seas of Shit, A Shining Diamond, and going back through my demo files to just scour things that I might be interested in putting back up on Spotify and on the platforms in this coming year, I realised that um, this tune was originally called, I think, it was, yeah, I told you it was pretentious, I think the original name I had for this tune was The Fair Maidens of Fair Isle, or The Maidens of Fair Isle. It's Basically based, me and my flatmate at the time, Kepa Rasmussen, watched um, the classic horror movie, The Wicker Man, and just the vibe of that film was incredible. I think by the time I saw it with Kepa, which is probably some point in the early noughties when we were living together in a kind of bedside situation, I was able to appreciate the depth of the story and the characterization and just the incredible filmmaking of uh, The Wicker Man more than I had before. But what really got me was that kind of... It's almost cliche to say it now... But the folk horror aspect of that film... I really identified very strongly with that... As someone who myself comes from quite a small rural um, town... That's maybe not quite as isolated as Fair Isle... But I really dug that vibe... And the other major influence I think... And why I kind of would describe this music... As being tangentially like chill out... But not quite chill out music itself... The other major influence on me at the time when it came to this kind of like synth, like just make some synthy, floaty music, was Boards of Canada. It was just like you couldn't really have been producing music and been a music nerd and a DJ and just into electronic music in general in about 1999 to the early noughties and not take massive influence from Boards of Canada. They were just incredible. It was retro synth that had been reconfigured into something very very dreamy and they were i mean there's some other acts as well like Aphex twin Aphex twin was a big influence on me around the time probably about a year later but fairly close to when i was getting into velvet underground and stereo lab and um, i got a copy of Aphex twin selected ambient works volume one which to this day it's still an amazing album but what Apex Twin and Boards of Canada did with their sound I think has become developed into now what people call lo-fi um, it incorporates elements of noise and not really recording everything super crisp and super clear so the things are a bit muddy and a bit more floaty in the mix and sunken and what that does it brings together a very dreamy atmosphere, a soundscape that's more based in what feels like memory than it is actually living a moment right now when you listen to the music and that was another thing that I wanted to experiment with when I was making this kind of music and here it is and on a bit of a side note I'd just like to point out if you have ever listened to any of the other podcasts that I produce this song from Seas of Shit, A Shining Diamond is the theme music that I use for the Islington Mill and Monthly Podcast, which you can find on the same channel as this. Um, And I'm really happy with this track actually looking back, because one of the things that happened is that the main sample that I've used, the kind of guitar drum break crash underneath the floaty synths, which I'm not going to out myself with in case it ever gets found out, but let's just say it's tangential to the Eagles. One of the nice things about this is that... um, It was a warped record that i sampled so like crappy me didn't know that you shouldn't sample warped records or maybe it did maybe just didn't care but people pay a lot of money now with plugins and stuff to warp their samples to make it sound like this but luckily for me i was just so crap at doing it that it came out that way and i'm still very happy with how it sounds now even though it's totally lo-fi moving swiftly on Track 3 of the next big thing is called Le Jacques Nouveau and as I admitted um, I can be quite pretentious in my art so I have a fondness for using non-English languages to name my pieces such as Le Jacques Nouveau which is obviously me taking French and turning it into something very pidgin because the word Jacques Jake doesn't really mean anything in French as far as I'm aware but the reason I called this track Le Jake Nouveau is, like I said, I was living in Glasgow at the time and Glasgow is a very culturally rich city, it's got its own slang, it's got so much of its own culture that's a bit hermetic, it kind of just lives within the confines of Glasgow and develops within itself. But one of the things that they say in Glasgow is when they describe somebody who, um, for instance, most particularly like an older man who probably doesn't have a job and uh, most kind of in the common conception probably doesn't have a home, might be homeless um, and, you know, likes to drink a lot of uh, alcohol and shout on the street and probably isn't very rich. Well, most of these people that they refer to are technically homeless the word that they use is jakey so they describe a particular kind of person as being a jakey and that kind of means in shorthand it kind of means like they're a pisshead, and they're most likely homeless um that kind of thing and the reason i called this tune le jake nouveau is me saying that i'm a bit jakey myself actually but i'm not just your commoner garden jake no I am a Jake who writes songs in Pigeon French because that's the kind of Jakey that I am. And musically, there's a big influence with David Bowie's Low album in here. I tried to recreate the drum sounds that I absolutely love um, from that album produced by uh, Brian Eno and, of course, Tony Visconti, not to overlook him. He engineered it and he was able to actually make real the thoughts that uh, Bowie and Eno had um, they got a fantastic drum sound on that album, and I spent ages trying to recreate it. I think with this, what I used, possibly a ring modulator, um, with a bit of a short delay on it as well, uh, for that really kind of that snare sound, that really squelchy, kind of wet, really wet, floppy, squelchy snare sound. I've since watched videos on uh, YouTube. Thankfully, somebody has done a tutorial video recreating their studio setup in Berlin at the time to show how they made that sound. And it was through a specific... um, I think it was the first ever... It was kind of a delay unit that was brought out, but it was a delay unit used so that you could change the pitch of what was being delayed and and that would feed back into itself, kind of like a tape loop. So... Interestingly, I can't remember exactly how I made these drum sounds, but I wasn't too far off the mark, actually. It does have something to do with ring modulation, and there is a short delay time in there as well. But obviously, I'm using... It was a Yamaha something 50 drum machine, a very cheap small one with those kind of clackety snare sounds, but ones that sound a bit like a real drummer, and just slathering it in effect. But the song itself is also influenced very heavily by... Bowie's low period I mean I wouldn't be a young man trying to make music with a level of pretension working in the alternative rock world in the very early noughties and not be obsessed with David Bowie's low everyone was riffing on that stuff at the time and I loved Lou Reed as well that whole kind of Berlin scene of David Bowie Iggy Pop and Lou Reed it's become almost cliche to talk about it now but it was massively influential on me so when it came to writing a song about who I was and what my aesthetic at that time was saying that I was like a borderline homeless person but with pretensions of making great art. It seemed to work with the low reference and I even throw in references to Living in Berlin into the lyrics of the song. Cheesy, yeah, but you know, I was a, I was a pretentious young man. What else do you expect pretentious young men to do? Track four on the next big thing is called, it looks like it says Focal Fun, but that's not how you pronounce it. The actual name is pronounced Fuckle Fun fun is um, an Irish board game set in the Irish language that we used to play as kids. Um, And it means, Fuckle is the Irish word for word. So means basically means word fun. So it was kind of a Scrabble-esque game, but it was done in the Gaelic language. And it was for to help kids learn the Gaelic language at school. The reason I call this Fuckle Fun is that, like I said, I was very heavily into Boards of Canada at this time and that kind of hazy dream-like memory pop kind of thing. Um, I don't know if that's the best way to describe it, but I'm sure if you're a music fan, you know what I'm talking about. Kind of memory pop. Pop music that deals with the imagined past or the internalised past and how, when we think about our past, it's covered in layers of, of mist and dirt because we were dragging these memories out of some kind of cortex in our brain that had been stored there for a long time. So when we think about it, it's got this kind of distortion of time passing placed upon it, and I always loved that musical aesthetic. And it was, Boards of Canada were probably the best at doing that, at this time anyway, before it became formalized into something that more people started to create, like dream wave and Synthwave. Boards of Canada, it just felt right. But there is a story to the song, and it's explained in the lyrics. I wrote the song after my grandmother died. So there was a real... And at this point, I was living in Glasgow still. um, There was a real hearkening back to my memories of being a child in Ireland, growing up in the early to mid-80s, and the relationship I had with my granny then. And we were quite close, although as she descended into dementia, unfortunately... Um, we became less close until she passed away but this was my take on writing a song about losing my grandmother and on the one hand it's very heavily influenced by the kind of weirdo synth memory pop thing of Boards of Canada but on the other hand one of the other artists that I was listening to constantly at that time was Sly and the Family Stone so Fuckle Fun it was probably the most emotional track that I'd written at the time up to that point about the passing of my mother's mother. and aesthetically, I describe it as being like boards of Canada trying to produce sly in the family stone.. Track number five on the next big thing is "You Crazy Cats. Um, there was a night I, I wasn't a student at this point I had graduated but I was still living in Glasgow I was trying to make my way as a musician but a lot of the, the friends that I had were still people that I knew from university and stuff um, there was one particular night where I went to a friend's house for a meal and we all sat around talking about music and culture and blah 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 um, and I decided to go home at some point but the rest of the guys who were there thought that then I think there was I think there possibly might have been some magic mushrooms involved in this but they said that they were going to get in a car and have an adventure they're just going to go out and drive and at this point I was kind of feeling itchy to get back home to my music equipment and to write and record something so taking inspiration from them my friends who had been to dinner with uh, and their quest to go out in a car and find some kind of adventure i wrote the song you crazy cats i remember thinking back on it now i remember it being very much like something that i was writing in my head and what i was writing in my head i was actually able to translate into the music i was getting down because if there's anyone out there who um like me likes to compose music in their head before they sit down and start to play it one of the big frustrations in life is that if your skill level doesn't match up to your compositional level it's a pain in the ass because nothing you write or record will come out as well as you imagine it in your head. But I do remember um, being very happy with You Crazy Cats because it was a synth drop in the middle that I had dreamt up in my head. And then I was able to actually program it and make it happen. And I felt really pleased with that. And another thing that really pleased me about this song was that some of my friends who were in a band called The Operators, who were basically a kind of trip-hop, down-tempo, alternative hip-hop act... Um, one of them, Charlie, who was a big fan of the Beatles, said that this reminded him of the Beatles song Blue Jay Way, which I took as an amazing compliment. Um, I'm not a massive Beatles fan, particularly. I do recognise that they are really good. When they were good, they were really bloody good. But they don't have the kind of life connection and the emotional connection that a lot of people get from them. For me, so I appreciate their music, but I do it, you know, at a bit of a remove. I'm not a diehard Beatles fan. However, Blue Jay Way is one of their best songs off the Magical Mystery Tour album, and it's actually one of their genuinely psychedelic trippy songs from when they were taking loads of acid. So. I think I probably was listening to a lot of Magical Mystery Tour at the album at that time because it was like a B-Sides album or a compilation album from the Beatles catalogue, so it had some of the most interesting stuff on it. And one of the tunes that I loved the most was Blue Jay Way. So for a huge Beatles fan who was a talented musician himself, to tell me that this song reminded him of Blue Jay Way was a massive compliment. And I still think that this tune has a real vibe and it just comes through in the music. And so the final track on uh, the next big thing, track number six, although I also did put this out on a digital seven inch on Little Rock Records, which is a big, another big topic that I'll be addressing in some of the future episodes of Liner Notes. Um, I split the song into two parts. The first part is called Song for the Unsigned. And then the second part is called In Parentheses. Yes, I told you I was pretentious. In parentheses, but will I ever fall in love? However, on the album release, on Next Big Thing, I just put it down as song for the unsigned. But when you listen to it, after about three minutes, it kind of, the singing and the drums and everything starts to fade away, and it just turns into something that's a bit more orchestral and legic, um, done on synths, um, and yes, reflecting my internal state of the time, wondering if I would ever fall in love, if I would ever meet someone that... uh, I could share my life with. And, you know, for my sins, thankfully that has happened to me. And I'm very happy about that. Um, When I think about the rest of the song, though, uh, I'm really, really happy with this song. I'm not going to lie. Song for the Unsigned, like I said in, I think, episode one, one of the ways that I saw myself as as producing music and and the kind of persona that I was projecting was like an Irish version of Beck called Feck. And Song for the Unsigned definitely was me on my Feck Uh, tip. This song in particular is very influenced by Beck from the album Mellow Gold, his track Pay No Mind, which is a gorgeous, laid back, uh, very drowsy acoustic thing, but in which Beck raps about being signed to a record label, um, Pay No Mind had just got signed. Um, And for me, I was desperate for a record deal, I was, you know, I wanted a record deal, I wanted to be back. So, you know, why not write about what you know, and write a song about your overwhelming desire to be signed to a record label. That's what this song is. It contains a lot of humour about the situation, but, you know, there's some realism that um, creeps through the cracks in the ironic facade. However, 20 years later, I'm, I'm really glad that I didn't get signed to any kind of record label. I'm glad that I can just stand here in my current music studio and just spraffle on shit about all this music that I made over the years, that I still get to define my music on my own terms and put it out there how I want it to be heard and thought about to an extent, with no other controlling factor except my own desire and my own will to do it. That's a really, really lovely thing. That's a really lovely place to be in 20 years later. And I think if I went back now and told the myself, who told, and told the nihilist who wrote and recorded Song for the Unsigned, that you're never going to get signed, it's never going to happen, um, I, but, you, but that's a really good thing. I don't know how 20 years ago me would take that because it just felt like all I wanted was a record deal. All I wanted was that stamp of approval, that validation of somebody going we believe enough in your music that we're going to put money behind it and give you a budget to do this and we'll pay for you to live so you can go on and and make the beautiful music that you want to make I know now that that was absolute bullshit, that, that that isn't what would happen if I were to get signed um, and I'm really happy that it never happened. So there's layers and layers and layers upon irony in this thing, in Song for the Unsigned, but You know, to be honest, I'm glad that I didn't get signed, even though I put so much of my heart and soul into trying to make that a reality. So, on the last episode of Liner Notes, episode number two, which I put up for uh, to accompany last month's album release, And Out of Nowhere, talked about who I was and where I was. And, like I said, I think I got most of that covered, to be honest. But there is more to the story than what I talked about last month. Um, i said that these two albums are companion pieces, and they are. Definitely are. They're in the shape of them. They both have six tracks. And each one of each one of the albums also contains one of those six tracks is about twelve minutes long. Um, and it's that uh, classic velvet underground white light, white heat format that I talked about in episode number two, and I repeated it from and out of nowhere to the next big thing. And even the titles are can be conjoined and out of nowhere, the next big thing. I didn't, however, sit down to record these albums, like I've already mentioned. I was just recording music and I think actually looking back on it, I had a plan for another album that I wanted to record in full. Um, and it would be my debut album. I was very when I was growing up, I was very heavily influenced by the by the British music press, but also by the idea of like a debut album should be like your absolute statement, like the Stone Roses. Or like the debut albums by Suede or so many of the kind of Britpop era bands that just seemed to have one hot album and then kind of withered away. It was very much the British indie music thing of that period, is that you would get hyped to the heavens for one album that was decried a a modern classic. And then the next album that you brought out, nobody cared. But I I tried to do that, but I just don't think it worked. Um, I don't think I had the compositional skills really when I think back about it now, to be honest. But I was recording music, as I described in the last episode, in a studio in Glasgow called The Chateau uh, uh, that had been set up by the band Franz Ferdinand and populated with all their artist friends who had little mini studios within this really decrepit warehouse, multi-floored warehouse building just off the, uh, just on the south side of Glasgow city centre, just uh, off Jamaica Street. Um unfortunately that didn't last because somebody tried to set the place on fire i was in there one night it would have been about mid-summer 2007 and i left the chateau i was usually the last person to leave and i always like time it so that i could get the last bus to take me all the way across town from the east end deep into the west end um And I did that night. I left, probably left about half eleven. I remember locking the doors to the building behind me, etc. And doing all the things that like the last person out should do. Um, Got on the bus. There was another friend of mine on the bus. We were chatting about, um, I think we were chatting about Robert Anton Wilson books or something like that. When I got a phone call from um, my friend Camille, who ran the fashion studio downstairs from our music studio. And the first thing Camille said is, are you in the chateau? And I answered, no, why? I'm on my way home. And she just said, the shadows is on fire. And not quite literally, but um, figuratively, I just bricked myself. I was in absolute shock. I just left that building 15 to 20 minutes beforehand. How could it be on fire? It turned out that it was an arson attempt. Somebody wanted to get rid of all the artists out of the building. Um, I don't know why specifically. I think some of the people might have been not... Uh, pissing someone else off or something, or maybe it was seen as being of higher value if the artists were gone and it could be sold. Whatever, I don't know. But there was an arson attempt on our studio building, on the Chateau, in the summer of 2007. Um, I'll go into more detail about what happened after that, probably in another in another podcast. But in to keep it short for now, I basically had to shut down my studio. I had to pack everything away, it was, we were literally paying £60 a month for, between three of us for a room that was about 50 foot by maybe 20 foot. It was really, really good value. But I just couldn't find another space in which I could set up my music equipment and just do the same thing again. I think psychologically it took a toll on me as well, knowing that like somebody tried to burn that place. And had I not left, I might have, who knows, I might have been a victim of that crime. Thankfully, I wasn't. But what I did do, I managed to get, I needed, I knew I couldn't just spend all my time in the house again, I tried that before, recording at home, I knew it just wouldn't work. So what I did is I packed up all my musical equipment, I put it away, but what I did do is that I started sharing a hot desk in another studio in Glasgow city centre. Now this wasn't a music studio, this was like, it was actually a comic book studio. Where a lot of the um, really well-known people on the, com- the Scottish comic scene were actually working from, but I managed to get a hot desk there. And for the next few years, after the end of about two thousand and seven, I had some really big life shakeups. I lost my studio. My first long-term relationship ended. Uh, it was real intense. Saturn, Saturn return, Saturn's return, whatever they call that thing. It was a really intense thing of that that was going on. Um, so I packed up all my music but what I did do is I spent the next couple of years going through everything that I had recorded to try and release it Uh, no music label was interested in my stuff at at this time so I was just self-releasing it Um, this was in the era of web labels started to become a thing so it was getting more and more possible for people to just put our music out ourselves without having to go through the third party of a record label there's obvious drawbacks to that Um, such as you'll either have to pay loads of money to get it promoted or nobody's going to be interested because the promotional channels are usually sewn up by the record labels. But I was able to sit there and just go through all my old music that I've been recording over the last five to ten years and put together some albums that I would like to release out of the stuff that I have, the stuff that I had. And, you know, the end process of that was and out of nowhere and the next big thing and also Lo-Fi Gold, which was the first album that I put up in Album of the Month Club this year, and which I covered in episode one of Liner Notes. So some good did come out of it. I didn't sit down to record these albums specifically as they appear. They're much more like cobbled, not cobbled together, but they're much more curated from a vast years and years of recording music. I picked these groups of six tunes to put on each of these albums. I, th- I felt that they made a nice... um Like I said at the start, I've got two sides to my musical aesthetic. The raw, harsh, noise, angry, passionate side. And then the more deeply layered, emotional, complex and probably groovy um, side to my music. And I was able to represent both those things on these two albums. And Out of Nowhere and The Next Big Thing. So, it's come to a bit of a conclusion for phase one of the Nihilist Album of the Month Club. I have covered the first three albums slightly in reverse order but they're still there Um, and they were the first three albums that I released myself on my own web label Little Rock Records when I started to release music in the late noughties after having spent so many years putting, trying to get stuff recorded and get it released by labels Um, which I did have some music released by labels I'm not going to like, I wasn't a complete failure in those terms, I did have some music released by labels but the funny thing was like the labels that I worked with seemed to fold really quickly after I put music out on them, I don't know why that would be, but I would like to think that it's not anything to do with me or my music. It was just uh, the way things panned out. But I was able to put this stuff out, and now I'm uploading it onto Spotify all these years later. And I'm just, it's just amazing that I can still put this music out, that it's there. I need to pinch myself constantly to remind myself that I did this. I did I made this music so contrary to whatever feelings of failure that I might have in my head I can shut them up quite quickly by having a look at like oh look I've got a Spotify artist page and I've currently got three albums up there and I know that by the end of this year there's going to be another nine albums and a bunch of singles going up as well so yeah it's actually all good I'm in a very good place with my music thank you very much And if you have listened to the end of this podcast, if you've got to this point and stuck with me spraffling all this shite for the last hour, these things are taking a lot longer than I thought. In my head, I'm like, yeah, it'll just be half an hour. But then I get into it and I get on the mic. And, you know, I'm doing this for myself as well because I'm wanting to document my own history in case something happens and I can't recall it. Um, But these podcasts are going on longer than I had anticipated so if you have gotten to the end of all of my liner notes or any of my liner notes podcasts thank you thank you thank you thank you so much for giving enough of a shit about me and the stupid stuff that I do for listening all this while I'm gonna end this now uh be spraffling along long enough so thank you again for listening uh if you are listening you obviously know where to find my music because that's where this stuff is going but if not I'm on Spotify, I'm on all the major music platforms as The Nihilist. Um, That's N-I-A-L-L-I-S-T. And I will be setting up a Patreon soon, actually, if people were kind enough to chuck me some loose change on that. But I'll talk about that in the next episode of Liner Notes, where I'm going to be covering an album that I haven't actually officially put out. It's going to be, again... Another album from this-esque period of my music production career. But I'm compiling all the little golden nuggets that I never got a chance to put out. And it's going to be called Hot Shit. Yeah, Hot Shit. So if you're interested and you've liked what you've heard so far, please come back next month for album number four and episode number four of Liner Notes for the album Hot Shit by The Nihilist. And this is my Album of the Month Club. Thank you again for listening. I'll speak to you soon. Goodbye.